This episode brought to you by Team Stripes Academy. Learn from some of the top officials in the world. Start today at TeamStripesAcademy.com. You're listening to the Team Stripes Podcast. The podcast for hockey referees. Each show, we discuss the world of officiating and find out that not everything is in black and white. Here's your host, Brandon Bourgeois. So hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Team Stripes podcast. We have a, a great guest for for you this week. It's somebody many of you there will have will have will know the name. Uh, his name's Brian Lewis. Now Brian was actually the former director of officiating in the NHL, and he actually was in that role for over a decade. Uh, prior to that, he was a referee himself, and he worked over a thousand NHL games, uh, including nine Stanley Cup Finals, uh, which is pretty pretty crazy. Um, and after that, he's had a couple uh, referee-in-chief positions, um, and he currently is the referee-in-chief for the Ontario University Athletic uh, League, which is the uh, university league in uh, in Ontario, obviously. Um, so yeah, Brian, we want to welcome you onto the uh, Team Stripes podcast. My pleasure to be part of Team Stripes. Hey, so Brian, tell us first off for all the listeners. Again, we you you, you know many out there will know your name, but just tell us. I mean, how did you first get your start in uh, in officiating? Well, uh, we're going to back up the clock here a significant amount of time, and that would be roughly 62 and a half years ago I started in my local hometown of Georgetown, Ontario, which is just uh, maybe 45 minutes outside of Toronto. And it was a small one. It had one rink, um, and you worked your way up into a minor hockey program. I tried out for two junior A teams and realized then I couldn't make it. So I thought it was almost like, why don't I trade my stick for a whistle? And then started doing kids hockey. There was a couple things. One, it got me extra ice time, and, and that in itself would be a benefit. And I, we had to do minor hockey in town for nothing, so it wasn't like all of a sudden you're getting paid. But as you went on, I remember being a, a linesman in intermediate hockey days and where there was one referee and one linesman. So that tells you how far back I stepped back. And, and the ice was flooded by guys pulling barrels. So <laughs> I, I don't want to say I've been around a long time, but that just sets the stage here of that you can get into it at an early age. I happened to talk to some 15-year-old yesterday at a, at a hockey camp and said that there's no reason in the world why you can't put down your stick for a brief period of time and pick up a whistle. I was doing that, and I worked my way up through and got an opportunity not only to do all the house league stuff in the, in the rep hockey, but then got into the Ontario Hockey Association, and that allowed me to be a referee. I happened to be part of, at that time, the Ontario Hockey Association also did major junior A games. And that gave the National Hockey, I guess they were scouting me, and I got invited to a hockey referees camp. And I remember the place was called Gordie Howe Hockey Land in Detroit. And after that, the next thing is, and part of it is a little bit of, to be fortunate, the NHL expanded from six to 12 teams, and they needed another six referees. But not only that, they needed some in the American Hockey League where that was also growing and, and became an expansion opportunity for NHL players. So at that point in time, I joined the National Hockey League and as you've already alluded to, and I won't use the numbers in terms of working as a referee, worked as a supervisor for three years, and then we lost John McCauley. Um, and, and I was fortunate enough to have been trained and taught by John McCauley. I worked very much with him. They offered me the job as a referee-in-chief, which I did for 11 years. And then upon retirement in 2000, and, and, and quite frankly, to get out of the business would be for a variety of reasons. Uh, one and, and the prime reason my wife was having a cancer battle and it's pretty tough to be on the road and trying to look after family. So I, I put myself down as being a bad dad, a bad husband, uh, a bad care provider, those kind of things. And I said, you know what, guys, I got to get out of here because I'm not doing my job that I should be doing very well. And I stepped aside. 
And then, of course, after a period of time when we beat that battle, uh, the uh, East Coast Hockey League, or ECHL as we know it, where my son-in-law was working at the time, he said, we need help. Is there any chance you come down and give us a hand? So I went to the ECHL for four or five years, thoroughly enjoyed it, Dan, and working with the youngsters. And then my son became the commissioner of the Central Hockey League, and he said, Dad, I need help. Can you help me? So then that became an opportunity to go there and give him a hand for two or three years and get in to go to some other place to have him at. But again, it was all part of the process of being able to be there, see the youngsters working up through the system, bring them into the program, coach them, mentor them all you can. And then after retirement, when the Central Hockey League folded and, and I'd had enough of that, I got approached and said, Could I, would they care to get me involved in the uh, OUA, Ontario University Athletic Program, and be the referee chief of the men's hockey program, which I've done for four years. But in addition to that, the last three years I've been doing discipline. So I used to call myself Judge Wapner at the same time. So, <laughs> But here, the caliber of hockey now is excellent. It's former junior A players a lot of the time, and, and I really enjoy it today. And, and this, uh, last weekend, our, our season just wrapped up. So it's over early, doesn't go like the National Hockey in June. And it just, it's been something that, uh, as I said at the start, over 62 years ago, I either had a striped shirt on, and over those periods of time, you've either had a striped shirt on or cared for those who do. And it's been a great run. And as I said to people yesterday, as bad as you may think it is relative to travel and all those kind of things, I would do it again. And Brian, I mean, obviously you had a tremendous career and you kind of alluded off the air that you know, actually on the air that, you know, you were speaking to young officials and wanting them to get involved with officiating. I mean, in terms of your career, I mean, speak to maybe how, you know, you, you, you were able to be successful in your, in your career, even starting out. I mean, for you, what were, what were those key skills or, or maybe, your, you know, the key things that you did that allowed you to move up the ranks and to become the official that, you know, works some very, very high-level games. Uh, they would, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, they would be some of the very same things that, that, that I did then that I would advocate for any youngster now coming into a program. And, and a, a couple of things. First of all, it's easy to identify and look at an ice level and say, this guy's a good skater, and he, he's in the right position and that kind of stuff. Then I'm going to look and see what's the judgment. Are we getting too many bad penalties, marginal penalties, or things of that nature? And it's not just about penalties. It's, it's how you handle pressure. To me, would be one of the most important parts here is a hockey player is heated after a penalty call. And, and I've never yet seen a hockey player say, thank you for the penalty. And, and so there's a little bit of a, a heated moment that's the kind of stuff I look for. And as a linesman, as an example, and I say to them, look, at, at the blue line, to make your call is perfect, everything's great. What I look for when things aren't normal, so all of a sudden players are coming at you and you go into the end zone to get out of the way, my first reaction is, what did the other linesman do? Did he move up to cover? All right, so then you can look at all the mechanics, face-offs, and all those kind of things here. My, my point would be, after the game, we may, may sit and have a little bit of a brief discussion and saying, okay, out of these... You know, what can we work? What can we improve on? And maybe pick two or three things that I want to see some improvement. My idea is I'll watch you work on Tuesday. I want you to be better on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And I've never yet coached anybody to be bad. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it. The on-ice portion, I say, you know what? We see sitting up top looking. We see everything going on on the ice. That's the player movement, everything else. Even watch the Zamboni do the ice mm-hmm. and be fully aware of and, of course, zeroing in on the three or four officials that are out there. Mm-hmm. Behind the scenes. I will be doing homework on you. And I even heard yesterday another person making a presentation to these same midget hockey players got talking about what you do in the social circuits and the social media, that is there forever. 
So I may look up that and see what kind of a guy are you, what kind of a person are you in your community? Are you helping out in your community? Are you doing something in the minor hockey, minor ball program, and so on? So it's not just what are you doing on the 210 by 85. I want to know if I'm going to hire you to work for me full-time in the National Hockey League. I don't want a reputation of hiring bad people, and I will do everything I can to make sure I hire good people. And you, you touched on coaching a bit, and, and obviously you've had a role, whether it's at the NHL or, you know, post-NHL with, you mentioned the Central Hockey League, uh, OUA obviously now. I mean, talk about your philosophy, and I'm, I'm hoping there's a lot of, you know, supervisors and coaches listening into this podcast. I mean, talk about when you go into a room after a game. Like, what, what, what do you focus on? Do you try and limit kind of the tips that you give? I mean, what, what's your overall philosophy in coaching young officials? Well, let's do it this way. Uh, I'm going to come in. I'm going to come into the dressing room. We're going to look at it from two components. <clears throat> Allow me to be a camera lens. So we open the lens up wide open, and we say, "How did the game go? Did did everything go well? Did it have any bearing on the outcome of the game? Did he do the stuff that he's supposed to?" And I say, "Yeah, way to go." Now I bring the lens down and zero in here. Maybe there's a couple times we can talk about positioning. Maybe there's a couple times we can talk about this penalty or that penalty. The idea is that that I, I can do it from two perspectives. And, and at the end of the day, those one or two tips that I'm going to give you, that's the thing I'm looking for next time. If you just simply ignore me, then I'm wasting my time. And I'll tell you, quite frankly, I can lose interest in you pretty quick. In two hockey games, one is I'm trying to coach, and two, I'm trying to say, are you paying attention to my coaching? And if you're not, why should I spend time? I must as well go watch Johnny Jones, somebody else who, who has the desire and aspirations to get into the National Hockey League. So that would be the, a couple of philosophies relative to coaching. And then I generally would come in, and if at all possible, sit down where you're looking at them eye to eye and have a discussion here. I become then, what I do on many, many, many occasions, I pretend that I'm on the ice with you. And I can recall saying to some guys that, that were making calls that I considered being the other official's area of responsibility in the zone. I happen to be the referee in chief when we brought in the four referees or the four officiating system. And if you're making calls in an area you're not supposed to, I would say then, you're lucky you're not on the ice with me because I'd throw you my whistle and say, here, you must well do the whole rink because you're not giving me an opportunity to do mine. Yeah. So part of the coaching is it's, I, I don't know that I've ever come in ranting and raving and kicking the old washroom doors. I don't know that accomplishes anything. My idea is what can I do and how can I take this bad situation? Again, go back to what I said before. You work Tuesday night and I'm there. I want to make sure you're better when you hit the ice on Wednesday. You should be paying attention because I've never once coached anybody to be bad. Yeah, and is, is that experience that you maybe that came from your on ice career when you were officiating, where maybe you kind of learned from from coaches that really were able to help you improve? Is that experience that went from your on ice career to maybe your your coaching career? Absolutely, and I can think of people like Scotty Morrison who brought me into the business, uh, a man that I know and respect, and still talk to him, still call him boss. And then we'd have the likes of a Frank Edvery. He's in the Hall of Fame as, as a very good official, tough, hard-nosed official, been in every situation you can. We had a supervisor at West named Dutch Van Dalen. He was like one of the guys that would be do everything he could to coach you to be better and defend some of the stuff you've done and, and that kind of stuff. So you look at it and say, okay, can I be a little bit of each one of those people? Because they were good enough to keep me in the business for 18 years, and what can I do to keep somebody else in and then now, even when I've been in, in the Central Hockey League, I'll use that as an example because it was the most recent pro league that I was involved in, to be able to take some youngster and, and bring him into your program. So I, I, I'm going to re remain nameless, but this is a real live story. We'll just call referee Johnny Jones. I was working in another league, and, and, and it was a, a, um, 
a minor pro hockey league. So I'm trying to say to him, you come with me, and I'll do everything I can to make you be a better official and get you to the next level. I spent time with this official before games, after games, um, the next day before he would go his way and I would go my way, everything I thought that I could do. And, and then I went to the National Hockey League and said to him, guys, I know what it is. I know what you're looking for. You have to come and take a look at this official. And I will tell you today, he's working in the National Hockey League today. And I was happy as heck when the guy phoned me and told me that he got a contract offer and all that kind of stuff. I happened to be in the war room the very night that he got his first game. And what a thrill to think of what I did and how I had to talk to this young man and what he did on his own in terms of the desire and the aspirations to develop to see that he got, he lived his dream. He got into the National Hockey League where he wanted to be. Yeah, and I'm curious, I, I, you know, I, I think nowadays, I mean, the officials live under, you know, a microscope in a sense that, you know, wherever you are, you can see replays and, and everything. But, you know, back in the area, era, not to, not to age you or anything, but back in kind of, uh, back in your era when you were officiating, you know, maybe, you know, we wouldn't have that same direct access to seeing kind of, uh, you know, the microscope that you might be under. I mean, from your career, I mean, take us back. I mean, what are some of the, the stories that, that, you know, a young official might not have heard about? I mean, give us an idea of what it was like to officiate back when you were back when you were in the NHL. Well, I'll tell you what, it, when, you, when you start out and you're working in the minors, and it, it's a very lonely life. I remember spending my very first Christmas, 1967, in Houston, Texas, in a hotel, and I'm sure that I was the only guest in the hotel, and there was a lady at the, at the front desk, and, and that was the only person I had to talk to. And in those days, you couldn't afford to phone home every day, and, and I'd be writing notes home to my wife and, and all that kind of stuff. And it, it got to be very, very lonely. So not only were you then saying, okay, under the microscope, you, you, had, you longed to run into somebody that you knew, whether that would be a scout traveling from point A to point B, whether that would be another official briefly at an airport as a two-year change in place, and at the end of the day, to say is under a microscope, you were, but you also had to fend for yourself on many, many, many occasions. The microscope was a supervisor who may come into the building unannounced. Right? So you couldn't afford to have, and I would say this to anybody today, you have to assume that somebody's there watching you, and it could be somebody else from another league who's just reporting, or it could be a scout who says to the referee in chief, boy, oh boy, Lewis did a great job the game the other night, or whatever. The microscope doesn't quit. When I was the referee chief of the National Hockey I went to the NFL officials training camp in Dallas to see how they functioned. They had more portable video coaching materials and equipment than we had anything. And I remember coming out of there and saying to our bosses, we have to get better at what it is we're doing here. We created a little studio that I could do voiceovers on tapes and that kind of stuff to get out. And now what they've got today, talk about a microscope. This is a a multi-featured microscope because they're getting clips that are in their hotel room or on their computers waiting for them when they finish. But in those days, we had the conversations. We had to be an officiating sponge to take in the information that the best friend I had was a supervisor in the building. Because if I was bad, somebody's going to know about it anyway. But if I'd done a good job, I want that supervisor to be there. So my idea would be to, to any youngster listening today, the best friend you have in a building is somebody who's there to coach you, mentor you, and supervise you with the idea being they want you to be a better official. Yeah. And as you look at the game nowadays, I mean, certainly there's lots of changes, but I mean, in terms of officiating, do you see, do you see the game as more challenging for officials in some ways, maybe better for others? I mean, what, what's your overall sense of how maybe the game's shifted a bit since, you know, the days that you were on the ice? 
Well, it's, it's funny because this came up in a conversation yesterday when I was at this hockey school, and it came up when we were talking about the days of the Broad Street Bullies and all those kind of things that was there and Ben Champion brawls, and it was writing reports after a game. You may be at 2 or 3 in the morning after you had a very tough hockey game. What are you doing? You're sitting in your hotel room writing a report, putting it on a machine so that somebody could take a look at it. And next thing you know, you're, okay, while we're having a hearing, you're on an airplane overnight flying into Montreal or flying into Toronto to go through a hearing and then get on a plane and fly back. It was very, very difficult in terms of the travel as a whole was just was horrendous. And I remember one year keeping track that I was on 123 different aircraft during the hockey season, and I don't know how many times I'd be on a bus and how many times you'd be on a train and how many times you'd drive your car from Toronto to Detroit or Buffalo and so on. And it would be interesting to know in the log how many miles you actually traveled in a hockey season because it would be mind-boggling. I have an idea how many miles I skated but I don't have any idea how, about how many miles I actually travel. So wow. the, 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 the game, in terms of challenging, I don't know the travel is as tough as it was then. Uh, you got to remember then there was three officials, and, and the linesmen a lot of times were local, so you spent a lot of time alone. And in the minors, the linesmen were local. So you could fly into Kansas City for a game, and you'd be there, and you'd be there by yourself for a couple of days waiting for that hockey game. So the, the, the challenging aspect of it was the toughest part of my game was to leave my house and say goodbye to my wife and kids and say, I'll see you in 10 sleeps. Mm. Yeah. And, I mean, certainly those are the challenges that you would have faced. I mean, looking back uh, at the, that on-ice career, whether it's the minors in the NHL, what are there special highlights that stick out for you? Well, it's it, yeah, I'm going to draw a comparison to a player. When you get and, and you're, you're brought on board in, in the National Hockey League, you do your first game. I remember it was in Montreal. I forget, it might have been about 1970. And I remember uh, standing at center ice and, and shaking like heck. And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky I didn't bounce myself to the blue line because you're so nervous. And then you'd say, okay, um, what, what I, what I, uh, the, 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 the apprenticeship part to go into the minors and then you're down there. The, the positive part about it all, when you're in the minors, you're, you're refereeing hockey games that the players have the same desire and aspiration. They, they want to get to the National Hockey League. So then now I get my first NHL game. Then you're saying, okay, boy, oh, boy, I want to make the playoffs. But isn't that the same as a player? And then you say, okay, I want to do game seven in any round of the playoffs. And then you say, okay, well, after that, I want to get game seven. I want to work a Stanley Cup final game. Oh, I want to get, could be assigned to a game seven in the Stanley Cup finals. So you can see, but you know what? That's the same as the player. The player has the same desires, the same aspirations. You may have been on the ice with him in Rochester, New York, or Baltimore, Maryland, or San Diego. And the idea is we all had the same wants and the same desires. We just wore different sweaters and had a different role on the ice. Mm-hmm. So, I, again, I go back to what I said a while ago. I mean, the minors was the toughest part, but I think it served me well, not only from a player perspective, because a lot of guys you knew and, 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 and whatever, but it's a great opportunity to learn, boy, oh, boy, some, some training really happened in the minors in terms of if it's going to happen, it's going to happen anyplace, it'll happen in the minors first. And I wanted to touch on, you know, we mentioned that you, you worked, obviously, nine Stanley Cup finals. And I'm curious, I mean, we were talking off the air before the show about, you know, the role of nerves in the, in the playoffs. And I'm, I'm very curious to know, I mean, you get your first Stanley Cup final. I'm assuming you're, you're, you're nervous going into that. I mean, compare that to the, to the ninth Stanley Cup final you worked. I mean, does that change at all? Is it always the same nerves going into that Stanley Cup final? Do you learn to handle it? I mean, what was the difference between maybe the beginning, the first Stanley Cup final, and, and the ninth one you worked? Well, I'd say this. You'd have a greater comfort level, right? Because you knew what the pressures were, and, and you, you, you've been around enough all year that you know the players for the most part. 
But I think here at the end of the day, the nerves, the nerves are there. The pressure's there. But I think by the fact that whether it be game one or game nine, the more there's no substitute for experience. I don't care what it is, what what sport you're officiating. There's no substitute for experience. But as you happen to get one, uh, I mean, I probably didn't sleep the night before and all that kind of stuff. And then by the time you get around to doing your seventh and your eighth and your ninth, it's a little bit more easy because you know what to expect. And that includes everything from the media. That includes the supervision. That includes your travel. Uh, all of those kind of things that kick in. Watching the game, you may be the standby for game number six before you work game number seven. We would do everything we can to be as prepared as possible. They, ha- they would have a supervisor that would be at every game in that series. So just say supervisor Dutch Van Dalen was at every game between L.A. and Vancouver. All right. So that, that was to provide the continuity. So I always knew going in, I'm going to get told exactly how the game was played if I wasn't watching it, either in the building or at home on TV. So I'm going to know they did everything they could to make me the best I could be and provide the continuity from game one right through to game seven. The nerve aspect, you have to get excited. I don't care what it is you're doing. And I'm going to go watch a granddaughter play a playoff game this next Saturday. And I can guarantee you, the officials doing that thing should have a pride, should want to do a good job. And I'm sure with all of those things factored in here, there has to be an element of nerves. I think those are more successful that can keep them under control. Yeah. And, you know, shifting to kind of your, you know, we, we've touched on your, you know, your role as the director of officiating in the National Hockey League. And certain, certainly you mentioned that maybe the, the, the reason, you know, you got brought in the first place was 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 it was a tough you know scenario with the passing of of John McCauley. But I mean, uh, talk about maybe your tenure as director of officiating in the National Hockey League. I mean, uh, I, I, would, I would be remiss if I didn't say that Wayne Bonney said that we had to ask you about some of the challenges the NHLOA faced in that time and, and kind of the, you know, the, the, the leadership that you displayed in, in guiding the, the NHL union, I guess you could say, the NHL officials through some of those challenges. I mean, just talk about your tenure and, and maybe some of the challenges that you faced um, in that time. Well, I can tell you this. I think it was my first year or shortly thereafterwards, we had an official strike. Mm-hmm. And my job was to deal and keep in lines of communication with the guys working in the minors. And that would be referees, and we had linesmen down there as well. So, but my point would be to that is you got involved from a negotiation standpoint right off the bat. What an indoctrination into, I'll say, looking out for not only yourself but your fellow official. Um, the, the NHLOA, we, we had, and I remember John McCauley and I were in the same car driving out of the hotel when we were leaving for our very first, we're done. And I remember Frank had very sticking his head in the car like it was yesterday and saying, if you guys leave this park a lot, you'll never work for the National Hockey League again. Well, as it wow. turned out, 32 years later, I still cashed a check, so he was wrong. <laughs> but, but anyway, my, my point would be to that is we, you, you take on a different role when you get involved in the officials association, and anybody who has does it with a great deal of pride. And, and even to this day, when I think of it, I have a, 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 I'll say a plaque that has a number 20 on it. And that was because 20 of us believed enough in one another and we packed up a training camp and we left. And uh, it wasn't easy. And you thought, oh my gosh, and there I just got a new job. What am I going to do next week? Because I had no job to go to and all that kind of stuff. So it's not only, I think I could handle the pressures put on me and I could I think I could handle NHL 08 matters. But I'll tell you what, when they start to come into my home and, and you could sit here and say, oh my goodness, you know, uh, there's no paycheck coming this week. What are we going to do? The good news was they all got solved. And, and, and I think today the NHL Officials Association are better off for what these 20 people did. Gosh, I can't even remember what year it was now, probably 67, 
I think maybe 68, somewhere, I think it was my first year, 67. Mm-hmm. And you think of where they are today and, and what they've accomplished over the period of time. I'm extremely proud to say that I was part of the group mm-hmm. and, and not of that, part of uh, helping others at the time. And I think we started something that today is, is well represented and well looked after by the guys who look after today. And, and my NHL OA experiences were as, as troublesome as they were at the start. I think at the end became very beneficial, not only for myself, but others in, within the industry. Yeah, and I mean, you kind of touched on it. I think, I think that, uh, I mean, it's certainly, I was never an NHL official, but I mean, some, some of the guys that we talk to, it, they all say the same sort of thing, that that, that that challenge that you guys face really transformed the NHL away for the better. And it's pretty amazing when you look at kind of the way that, I guess, the NHL, well, certainly there's always challenges, I guess, but the way that the NHL away is now, and I think that you guys, uh, like you said, it's, it's a much, much better place. Um, and certainly I think that, that's a credit to you. And I'm just curious, like, I mean, you look at that, and you, you mentioned that it was a, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to go through in, in terms of the strike and, and whatnot, but, I mean, from the get-go that you mentioned that number, that number 20, I mean, were you guys kind of sitting there and saying, we have to do this, or was, it, was there challenges that saying, hey, this is a big risk to all of us in doing this? I mean, what, were, what was sort of the, 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 the train of thought, I guess, in, in behind the scenes? Well, I believe there was five people who didn't come with us, and then there was a bunch of rookies at training camp, which is fine, and, and nor would we expect them to. And, and I have to say this, we were a little bit upset for those that didn't, but you know what, they do it for their own reasons. I remember we left there, and at the time, I think it was Bill Friday was, was the president. We went to Bill Friday's house and had a barbecue. And, and, and part of us either to console one another or to get a game plan in order. And we created our own training camp, and we did this, and, and the idea being we're going to get this thing solved. And, and it did. Um, and there's been other labor disputes relative to the officials' association. But I, when you go back here, it had to start sometime, someplace. Our idea behind it was that, that we didn't make a lot of money, and we were trying to look out for ourselves. Uh, and not of that, then we thought subsequent years the officials would be better off for it. And we can talk about meal money, we can talk about travel expense, we can talk about anything. At the end of the day, the bottom line, we were professional people, and and we didn't think we made a lot of money and expected more. And we were being asked to do different things at different times. And and but it's no different than any other. I get reluctant to call union. We were an association of of guys that really wanted to pull together in the same set of oars, and it worked out very well. And as I said today, what started in 67 and what the guys are going through today, uh, I just really hope that they appreciate what went on and the amount of time that some of the people, and that includes John McCauley, who's not around, and the Dave Newells, who's not around, and, and Bill Friday, who still is, and those people who put in countless hours uh, making sure that we did and, and did the right thing and, and were represented well, whether that be through the media or whatever. And, and at the end of the day, I really believe the game is much better for what we did in 1967 yeah and uh like i said i was never you know in in uh, within the ranks of the nhl or anything but i think it's a major credit to you and certainly like i say uh, wayne bonnie said we, we needed to mention that to you and, and really give a lot of credit to you for for what you've done in in that situation and and so i think that that's 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 incredible what you guys did and um i wanted to shift a little Brandon, bit because, i just have to just have yeah. to interject here right now and yeah. i apologize for doing that but i have to yeah. say this yeah i don't know that i would need to use the word i Mm-hmm. I, what I did, no, it's what we did because mm-hmm. we did it together and we stuck together. And at the end of the day, there were strength in numbers, so twenty people. Yeah. And as I said before, I have a very, I'm very proud of a plaque that sits here throwing a number twenty on it. Yeah, yeah, and that, no, I think it's 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 pretty incredible. Um, yeah, I guess what you guys did as as a group um, of officials. And I, I wanted to uh, ask, and I hope this is okay. Um, uh, we noticed, you know, looking into your background, that you also served as a uh, 
as a uh, as a town councillor. And I'm, I'm very interested to know, you know, how did your experience as, as a referee, uh, certainly as a director of officiating, shift into being a, a city councillor? Well, in, in my retirement in the year 2000, um, the mayor at the time and two of my councillor colleagues, you've got to remember here, I, I live in a town that I grew up in. And, and just to give you one example, I went through the mall one day with one of my granddaughters, and, and I don't know, it took us an hour to get through the mall, and she says, Papa, do you know everybody? Well, you got to remember... <laughs> We live in a small town, and when you're growing up in a small town, I have a great deal of pride living in my town of Georgetown or Halton Hills, as it's known today. And, and, and we say, okay, I got approached by the mayor and two councillors at the time and said, no, you're going to have more time on your hands. I, I, couldn't co- I coached ball in the summertime because I was home, but I couldn't coach hockey for my son. I wasn't around. I, I missed the, the dance recitals and the piano recitals and those kind of things. And I got approached to say, no, what, you're, you're back home. You know, you got more time in your hands. Would you like to get involved? <laughs> That was the year 2000, and I think six elections later, I'm still here. <laughs> Either means you're doing something right, or you're a big fool that you, that you fooled the people to, to have it. <laughs> it's a small town. I really enjoy it. Yeah. Now, there have been many occasions that I thought, if I put on my referee sweater, I can solve this between two feuding people. <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, to, your, to your point, my prior training as an on-ice person, handling and resolving conflicts has absolutely been beneficial in, in dealing with the public from a council perspective. It's, it's a small town. We're roughly 67,000 people. I represent the rural area, so I get a mixture of the farmers. I get a mixture of the small entrepreneur who's trying to get a business going in the, in the rural area and the residents who have a great deal of pride in what it is they bought, whether that be 10 acres or just an acre or just a lot. And, and we have people with no sidewalks in front of the house because they're in a rural environment. And and just all of the stuff that goes with it. But now, mind you, we've had some flooding going on recently, and it's not nice. Mm-hmm. And you try to be as hands-on as you can, and you try to gather information. But the fun part about that, and, and, and the resolve to a lot of those things, is you have to be able to deal with town staff. Mm-hmm. And I pride myself on having a, a good rapport with town staff, whether it be the crews out on the road or whether it be the people in the building. But I think that is also as a result of training I've had as an on-ice person where there's some... There's some resolve that you have to, you know, some heated people for whatever reason, whether that be a coach or a manager, owner, a player or whatever. And so to your point, my prior experience as an on-ice person wearing black and white striped shirt has absolutely 100% been beneficial in terms of dealing with the public. Yeah. And I'm curious, I, I, it, it's, it's amazing, like you talk about kind of how that it lines up well, I guess, with the skills and how you can bring that experience. I mean, do you know of any other officials that, that have got on to, to, you know, become town councillors or become uh, politicians? Is this something that's, you know, is that, is that, you think it'd be more common in a sense because of the skill sets, right? I'm going to give you some names here that, that you should recognize. Maybe you don't recognize Bob Kilger. He coached the Memorial, Memorial Cup team when they were, I believe, Oshawa. He was uh, a member of parliament in, in Ottawa. And then he became the mayor of Cornwall for a period of time. Andy Van Halleman, who uh, obviously everybody that ever wore a striped shirt or looked at a striped shirt should recognize Andy's name. He was a counselor for, I believe, two terms in uh, Guelph. Ron Eagle, who was an official, uh, a linesman primarily. Uh, I think one, maybe two terms. He was a counselor in the town of Wasega Beach. Those are some that jump out at me, and, and I'm not too sure if Malcolm Ashford from Vancouver wasn't involved in the political world, and and there may be others that just don't come to mind right off the top, but there are some right there 
And, and I've often talked to Ron Ego as an example about what it is he does in his community and what I do. As it turns out, my brother lived in the area that he was, that he represented up until this last election. So, yeah, I'm not the first guy, uh, and, and probably won't be the last one. Yeah. And and I and I don't know. I mean, I don't know why. What makes it good? What makes it enjoyable? And you know what? And maybe. Maybe we do it because you just like punishment. I'm not too sure. <laughs> and you've never brought your whistle to a heated town council meeting, have you? I have brought my whistle. I brought my rule book. And I said, the heck with Robert's Rules of Border. Let's deal with the National <laughs> Hockey League rule book instead. And yes, I have. And there were times I think I've even taken a striped shirt there. <laughs> that's, a, that's amazing. Um, no, that's, that's, that's an amazing, uh, <laughs> amazing story, Brian. And uh, um, coming up, to, I guess, to the end of the podcast, we uh, and firstly, we really appreciate your time, and this is a, has been a, a great interview, a great podcast, and very insightful. Um, but I'd be remiss, you know, as we end most podcasts, is just ask, you know, for all the young officials that might be listening out there, what advice would you have for them? Don't give up. I we all have tough games. We all have games you wish you weren't at. We have all games you say that's it, I'm going to quit, and all those kind of things. And at the end of the day, you know what? It's all part of learning. When I think of the Ben Champion brawls that I went to, and I think of sitting in my hotel and writing reports, and I think, why would I do this? I can't believe that I got into this profession. And I'll tell you what, if I'd said to any youngster to convince them, I would do it again. And I just simply say to people, as bad as it may seem, Hockey Canada adver- or, or, or will state the fact that they lose roughly 10,000 officials a year. That's a lot. The good news is there's more people coming in and willing to try it. A lot of the people walk away as a result of coaching abuse and parental abuse, and and and, and I don't. That's not right. And I simply say it's penalized those people who are doing that kind of stuff because we want the officials to be under the business that that's there. And I say is don't give up. Take an opportunity to have and learn from everybody that's willing to give you some information to make you be better. Uh, and that could be somebody, a fellow official on the ice, talking to you maybe in a face-off, talking to you between periods. So I encourage you to be a sponge and take in this information. At the end of the day, take every game you can get your hands on, because I'll tell you one thing, there is no substitute for experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well said, Brian. And um, once again, we want to really thank you for taking the time to talk with us, and we wish you all the best uh, down the road. Thanks, Brandon. You feel welcome to call me at any time. I'd be more than happy to do this again.